and welcome to the Swine Disease Reporting System. This is the Report 31, where we will, we will cover data until August 2020. My name is Daniel Linhares with Iowa State. Hello, my name is Giovanni Trevisan with Iowa State. And we have a special guest here today, Dr. Daryl Holtkamp, who is a global expert in biosecurity, biocontainment, uh, disease economics, and other topics. Uh, Daryl, it's great to have you with us today. Morning, Daniel. Thanks for the invitation, Daniel and Giovanni. Glad to have you with us here today. We're going to cover, as I said, the report 31 for the SDRS. But before that, the first part of the report talks about disease uh, detection, right? Monitoring disease, det uh, sorry, pathogen detection uh, over time, space, age, age category, so on and so forth. And so I'd like to start asking, Daryl, what's the importance of disease monitoring? in that uh, large scale over time? Yeah, I think you can address that from uh, several levels, uh, at the national level, the state level, and the farm level. Uh, Monitoring is important at, at all those levels. Uh, for example, at the national level, um, I remember back to in, in 2011, after we had done the, uh, the most recent update on the cost of PERS for the National Pork Board, uh, I was presenting some of the results at ASV to the to the PERS task force. and. And, uh, you know, compared to what uh, the estimated cost was in 2005, uh, you know, it appeared that the cost had gone up a little bit. And so, of course, the question was, well, why, why is that happening? Uh, and, and the truth was we had no ability at that time really to address that question because we weren't monitoring uh, the incidence of outbreaks. We weren't monitoring any, any diagnostic information like you're doing here um, on, on a regular basis. And so, we, you know, the simple answer was uh, we really didn't know. And so, um, you know, that, that I think uh, was a good motivator then for, for some sitting in the room then to, to go out and try to do a better job. Um, and, and I think, you know, another uh, example at the national level where I think monitoring makes a big difference is, is just being able to tell if we're making progress or not for things like biosecurity. Uh, you know, for example, um, uh, when, when uh, PD virus was introduced in the, into the United States in 2013, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, lot of work done and investments made in biosecurity. And, uh, and I think, you know, the, the, what we were able to do by, uh, by being able to sort of monitor the incidents through, uh, you know, Bob Morrison's efforts at that time, mm -hmm. uh, we could tell that, that the incidence of PERS went down in response to that. And, and it has stayed down really since then. And so it, it was a good way to sort of confirm uh, for everybody that uh, was making these big investments that, yeah, it was making a difference. And so, uh, and then the other, the last thing at national level is, um, heard there's been some some discussions recently um, uh, about um, the possibility of maybe even uh, trying to eradicate PED virus now and, and based on the relatively low incidence of that. And, and so, again, without having the ability to monitor that, uh, we would really just kind of be guessing, uh, guessing at whether or not, uh, uh, you know, it might be the right time for something like that. Uh, at the state level, um, you know, it serves as an early warning system. Are there things that are changing that we need to be paying attention to? And, and so it has value there as well. And then finally, at the farm level, uh, monitoring there, really uh, trying to understand what disease is, is doing uh, in our system. How much uh, is it costing us in terms of lost productivity? It's, uh, it's, it's very difficult to, to make investment decisions, how much time, resource, and, and other money and money to invest in reducing disease if you don't know what it's costing you. And so you have to have some ability then, I think, to be able to monitor disease at a herd level just to know what to invest to, to, uh, mm -hmm. to reduce um, the disease. So it fits a lot of information, making it easy for, easier for people to make decisions based on data, right? 
That's so right. In the, so in a, uh, get, getting more into the weeds here, and in the first page of the report where it talks about detection of PERS uh, virus RNA over time by PCR, right? And so, Giovanni, in this page here with the PERS data, uh, it, it shows that the, the, uh, the detection level, it's uh, within the expected for this time of the year based on the forecasting um, uh, models. And uh, so what else would you like to highlight here from this page? That's correct. The detection of PERS virus is in the downward side of the curve for expected for this period of the year. And we are reaching that point where we expected to go upward. So the detection August was very similar to July, and we still observe a moderate decrease in adults so far from uh, July to August. And the advisory council did point out that this detection is according to the expected and what they are mm -hmm. observing in the field for this time of the year. Daryl, talking about uh, PERS detection here, in your point of view, your opinion, how, how effective has the swine industry been on, uh, on, on managing PERS virus. We hear a lot of people saying, yeah, we've, PERS is still causing problems. PERS is still a, a bad disease going, going on. Mm -hmm. But uh, from your perspective, how, how effective has the industry been uh, 30 years now, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good question, uh, Daniel. Um, and, and fortunately, we had an opportunity a few years uh, back here now to, uh, uh, to update the, the cost of PERS. It's something that uh, back in 2014, the National Port Board had a, a fairly major strategic planning um, uh, activity or session, and one of the goals that came out of that was uh, was to reduce the cost of PERS by 20% by the year 2020. And and so uh, uh, I was contacted by the Port Board to to, to uh, do a, let's say it wasn't a full blown uh, reassessment of the cost of PERS, but just to, to update. Um, provide some estimates on, on how the cost might be changing. Mm -hmm. And, and so we did that. The last one we did was in the fall of 2018. And, and, and by the way, these, these uh, were done for port boards, internal purposes. They're published in a in national port board report, but not in, uh, in the peer reviewed literature. But uh, the last update we did was in the fall of 2018. And so we were looking for, you know, what, what has changed since 2010. And, and I think that gives us what, what we found there kind of gives us a sense for whether we're, we're making progress and, and why uh, we're making progress with PERS. And there were really three major things that it looked like were going on. One was, uh, you know, overall reduction in the, in the cumulative incidence of outbreaks every year. Uh, so that was number one. Number two was a shift away from uh, elimination to control. And so what that essentially looked like is if you look at, uh, you know, the reports uh, from the Swine Health Monitoring Project, you can very clearly see that that the, the percentage of herds that are in category four, the negative uh, category that, that would only get there if they were uh, established negative or had eliminated the virus, uh, that the percentage of herds in that category has steadily gone down. And, and uh, the percentage of herds in, in what we consider the, the uh, category where your, your destination is if you're going to try to control the virus, which is positive, stable, mm -hmm. category two, the percentage of, of herds in that category has gone way up. So, so producers and veterinarians over time have have sort of moved away from trying to eliminate the virus and moved towards just trying to control the virus, uh, with the idea that if they do have an outbreak in those herds that they're controlling the virus, then it's not going to be near as severe as in is in a herd that's negative for the virus. So there's some immunity there, and and so that's the one uh, the, the 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 two kind of things that have happened in terms that affect the 
you know, the, the percentage of herds that are affected versus unaffected by PERS virus. And then the third thing, thing that, uh, that happened, uh, or that seems to be happening is that, that there are improvements in managing, uh, these positive stable herds. And so, uh, if we're able, and that, that only applies when we're, we're able to avoid outbreaks in those herds. So as long as you can avoid an outbreak, maintain a herd as a positive stable herd, uh, uh, it, it appears that the productivity in those herds has has greatly improved compared to 2010. In fact, that uh, in, in the herds we looked at, the productivity is really approaching that in, in negative herds. So it's not too far off of that. And so, the net effect of all those changes, Daniel, is that uh, the, the pork board's goal we got we got very close, if not uh, able to hit that um, in in 20 or the fall of 2018. Last time we measured that, we were right at 20% reduction in the overall cost of pers. Uh, as a result of all those changes I just mentioned. So, so yes, I think we are making, making progress here. The issue would be to try to maintain that. And I think that's where that's you know, we'll have to, have to keep improving biosecurity. So, All right. Thanks. Thanks for the, the update. So moving on here to the second page, topic two, uh, where we're going to talk about detection of um, RNA of enteric coronaviruses by PCR. So the PD, Delta, and TGE. And Giovanni, from a very similar to the first picture here, if I understand correctly, um, those uh, detection of those pathogens in, it's in the uh, lower uh, boundaries there, as 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 expected within the forecast parameters. So, what else would you like to to highlight from this page? That's correct. We are in the downward side of the the curve for this time of the year, and as we look for these. On the state level, our monitoring at the state level is within the expected baselines for this time of the year. But the advisory council reminded us to watch closely to monitor animal health in the herds mm -hmm. as we go towards the colder months where we could have a higher number of uh, outbreaks and detection of these agents. Yeah, and that brings back to what uh, Darod was 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 talking about the uh, importance of biosecurity. So Darod, mm -hmm. both for PERS and for PED, those are kind of seasonal diseases, right? Where right uh, in the summer months we have lower detection, fall winter uh, higher detection, then summer lower again. So we're in that point of time where detection it gets as low as it can get compared to the previous years. And so, if the history repeats itself. The following weeks or months, detection is going to go up for PERS for P and for coronaviruses. So, in your mind, what what message can you? Can, how can we help the industry to kind of break that cycle and keep those down instead of, of going up? How can we uh, break that cycle and beat the odds and and keep that uh, detection low? Yep. Yeah. Well, of course, the main the main tool that we have to work with then uh, is is biosecurity there mm -hmm. right, to, uh, to try to prevent the introduction of virus into these herds. Now, once it's, once it's there, of course, there's lots of, uh, you know, management strategies that we need to focus on vaccinations and controlling the environment and all those. Mm -hmm. But, but I think really focusing on, on biosecurity, uh, this time of year is always a good idea. Uh, and, and unfortunately, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm really becoming an advocate that biosecurity uh, requires hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's not something that you can rely on just lists of practices to, uh, to know what to do. Every, every production system is, is different. Every farm is different. And, and you really have to look at the steps in the production processes, like, for example, how they raise and deliver and enter gilts into the herd or how they, how they produce and deliver and enter semen or how, how employees uh, enter the farm and what they're, what they're doing when they're away from the farm. Um, you have to look at all those processes. And that's, again, that's where the hand-to-hand -hand, hand -hand combat comes into play there. 
And, and what you, what you really need to do is assess where the hazards are. And, and again, these are going to be specific to each, each system, specific to each farm. And, and that's not something you can start doing in the fall. That's a, that's something you got to be doing year round. So that as we, as we come to this time mm-hmm. of year, then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hopefully by now you've, you can identify some control measures to, to deal with those hazards. And so this is the time of year to be implementing those. And, and some producers have taken the approach of, of doing things seasonal, like uh, uh, biosecurity practices that are, mm-hmm. are more seasonal. Um, you know, I think for most of them, you, you know, you're probably better off once you get them implemented and, and people are doing what you expect them to do, uh, you know, probably just continue those. But uh, rather than trying to, trying to, you know, drop them during the summer months and then pick them up. But there are some biosecurity practices that cost a lot of money. Uh, and, and you may not want to do those year round. So, so that's, that's fine to do them seasonally. But, uh, but I think, um, uh, you know, this is the time of year to be, to be really thinking about that. But, but again, biosecurity is not something that, that you can do just one t- once a year. It's, it's an ongoing process. So anyways, to, to break the cycle, you believe it's, it's not vaccine. It's not anything. It's bi- biosecurity, biocontainment can do it right for, for those yeah, two viral diseases at least. Yeah, that's right. I think especially for PED virus, you know, it's it's um, uh, when it really gets down to it. Uh, you know, vaccinations may have a role uh, in 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 helping uh, uh, that, but but it really does come back to biosecurity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, and good message that biosecurity is year round, not just in the fall or right beginning of the fall. It's year round. All right. right. Um, so moving forward here to the topic three uh, of the report: detection of mycoplasma hyaluronemoni. DNA by PCR. And uh, Giovanni, this, the seasonal trend for mycoplasma is a little bit different than, P, than that of PD and, 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 uh, and PERS, where we're in the period of the year where it's, it's on the rise, right, mycoplasma. But it's still within the, the expected uh, boundaries of the forecast model. So what else would you like to highlight for the, the audience here in terms of mycoplasma detection? Oh, that that's correct. And we did not have any other additional comments from advisory council besides that we are seeing that in the field and it's according to the expected for this period of the year. Okay. And so there are the talk, talking about mycoplasma and economics, uh, in, in your opinion, is it worth it to, to, um, move to eliminate mycoplasma from the herds, be aggressive on mycoplasma elimination is control enough. How, how do we approach that with, the uh, with uh, with producers veterinarians yeah so uh that's that's really a an, an individual farm individual system decision but mm-hmm. but overall i would say that it looks to me like uh, like that uh, in, in many cases and i'll say most cases it, it it is a a good economic decision the the it's really a capital investment decision uh where you're going to make some investment up front uh to uh, eliminate mycoplasma mm-hmm. Anemonia, and then and then you're going to reap the award, rewards or benefit of that over a long period of time, and so the return on investment uh, then hinges on first the probability of success. So you could end up uh, spending a lot of time and and investing a lot of resources and not be successful. So you're not going to get the benefit. So that's number one. And then the number two is how long you keep it negative after you you get it get it out. And and so both of those, um, you know, if you're doing a net present value analysis or a cost benefit uh, analysis. Um, you know, that, that return on investment depends on, on those two things, probability that you're going to be successful and how long it takes to keep it negative. And, and based on, on what I've seen uh, in the field, talking to veterinarians and practitioners uh, and producers who are doing these, 
you know, they've, they've got that down where the probability of success is pretty high. It's probably not 100%, but if things are done done correctly and attention is paid to details, mm-hmm. uh, then the probability of success is pretty high. And, and mycoplasma is not like PERS and, and PD virus where, uh, well, PERS virus especially, where it's relatively hard to keep out of a herd. Uh, it seems to be fairly uh, fairly challenging, actually, I'll say, or difficult for that virus to be transmitted from one herd to another. Mm-hmm. It happens, but it, but it's not nearly as uh, as common as happens with PERS virus. And and so the 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 you know you, the expectation about how long you can keep it out, how long you're going to get the benefits of having a, a negative herd, uh, that's going to be fairly high too. So yeah, I think I think in many cases, uh, you know, it probably is a wise economic uh, decision. Mm-hmm. And just because of the methods, uh, we see here people uh, piggybacking, right? So if they have to eliminate my PERS, mycoplasma, they can do that kind of using, combining the strategies and do that at once. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Double up on the benefits, um, you know, maybe a little extra cost that way up, up front. But yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. All right. So that was uh, what we had to cover about uh, pathogen detection. Now we're going to move to the last page of the report where it talks about disease diagnosis uh, here at Iowa State VDL using uh, what the diagnosticians call di- diagnostic codes. So this this page here is not about pathogen detection, it's disease detection, right? The, the, what's, uh, and, uh, and Giovanni, so this is reported uh, by, by syndrome, right? So disease detection by respiratory, digestive, neurological diagnosis. And uh, so PERS and influenza continue to lead the respiratory page. Uh, rotavirus E. coli continue to lead the in, in, di, 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 digestive or enteric cases, and strep suis continue to lead the, the nervous cases, right? So, And you do monitor for, for signals. Do, 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 would you like to highlight uh, anything for this month? Yeah, that's correct. We do monitor uh, over 30 agents by signals in the background of the this data. And we... Last month, we did present the information that coccidiosis was above the expected for during some weeks. And during uh, July to August, we saw that the digestive diagnosis continues to give signal, and that was associated with signals in E. coli. There is a restricted number of cases, the clostridiosis, but there is a signal over there as well. And additional to that, there is another disease, the mulberry heart disease, that that is a strict number of cases, but there was signal in that uh, number of diagnoses for that disease as well. That may be associated with a few uh, systems or few few regions, right? Right, that could be. Oh, so, so uh, there. That brings us to another question, right? We we're talking about the the big ones, PERS and the enteric coronaviruses, even mycoplasma, but. There is also those diseases affecting the herds, right, from E. coli to salmonella to uh, my, uh, other types of mycoplasmas. And so how, how, how do you approach that with, uh, with producers in terms of how do you manage those diseases? Probably not eliminate because they're so endemic, but still, how do you control? How do you manage those in general? How do you approach that? Well, yeah, you're right. Uh, those are uh, all all diseases that are ubiquitous, and and so it, it, yeah, you're not you're not going to be they're not going to be the, the focus of biosecurity to try to keep them out because they're just going to be there, and and so then you're left with uh, with managing uh, you know both the immunity of the, of the pigs, mm-hmm. uh, you know in some cases antimicrobials or other other uh, uh, pharmaceuticals, 
uh, and then just sanitation, right, and, and your basic uh, management of the uh, of the environment. So, you know, it's always good, I think, to go back to the, the epidemiological triad where you get mm-hmm. the, the pig who is the host in the environment, and then you get the pathogen themselves, and, and you've got all those interactions. And so, um, uh, you know, of course, for, you know, that, that's going to be specific to each, uh, each individual pathogen, but, uh, uh, but I guess... In the, in the in the short amount of time we have, that that maybe maybe better stop it uh, with that answer. <laughs> yeah, no, well, good good, good, uh, good example to go back to that triad and understand the the interactions and understand what can you do in terms of environment, manage uh, immunity, and uh, sometimes uh, tackle the pathogen itself with uh, with some uh, uh, health tools, right? Mm-hmm. So great discussion. What what else? Uh, there your your final message to our listeners uh, regarding today's discussion. Yeah, well, I, I've been given a lot of thought lately here uh, uh, to to how uh, the swine industry manages infectious disease compared to uh, you know how we've been managing uh, with with COVID, and and, and mm-hmm. I think it's uh, it's really rather interesting. Um, uh, at the end of the day, I've, I've come to the conclusion that I, that I think I'd rather be a pig. Uh, just a couple of examples of why I think, you know, we, we, we do a better job of managing infectious diseases in pigs than we've done with COVID. You know, you look at the response that we had uh, to PD virus in the United States in 2013 and, and how quickly we were able to ramp up both the development of tests, PCRs, antibody tests, and so forth, and then how quickly the veterinary diagnostic labs were able to ramp up uh, and handle the testing load. And you compare that to the response we've had today with COVID. And, and, and again, I think I'll, 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 I'll take the side of the pig again. Um, you know, and second, uh, even, even with sufficient ability to test now, we still lack uh, for COVID an effective monitoring strategy. And, and we have no way of classifying populations like we do with PERS virus. And, and now there's a, a mycoplasma high pneumonia classification system that'll be published soon. Uh, and for COVID, you know, imagine if we had the ability to monitor these populations and then estimate the incidence uh, and, and then to classify those populations based on that incidence, either at a national, state, local, or or even a company or university level, as as mm-hmm. is relevant for us here at Iowa State, you know what, um, you know that the students, uh, the faculty and staff at ISU are essentially a population, right? And and so um, you know a classification system would enable us then to uh, develop measurable goals, uh, you know, for each, for managing disease and then also communicating that, uh, things about the disease or facilitate the communication, uh, about where we stand, you know, relative to achieving those goals. Are we, are we hitting them? Are we close? Are we not achieving them? Uh, and if we are close, uh, do we need to take more drastic control measures or, you know, are we able to maybe ease some control measures? And, you know, that, that last question suggests that, you know, you can have status specific control measures, uh, and, and so that everyone knows what to expect, right? And it's not just all of a sudden somebody announces something and, and uh, you know, all the bars have to shut down again. And so it's uh, today it's very hit and miss. And, and so what that, you know, that would require then is estimating the incidence uh, would require an, uh, a coordinated effort, you know, and, and you, you can't rely on voluntary uh, sampling, unfortunately. Uh, you'd have to, you know, there'd have to be some sort of random sampling of the population. Now, I granted, you know, with pigs, when we tell them, we're going to sample them. They don't get a say, whereas people do. But, but I still believe that can be managed. Um, mm-hmm. But today, it's we're all relying entirely on voluntary testing and reporting as well. So, get both of those. Some people get tested, and that doesn't always get reported. And so, we're stuck with relying on, on statistics like the positivity rate, which you know is primarily a function of who decides to get tested. 
uh, it's not a really good indicator. And, and, and then hospitalization rates and death rates are probably good indicators, but they're lagging, right? So it can be two weeks, three weeks, even a month before we see if things are changing. So that's not really sufficient either. So, so just to wrap up again, I think, I think it was, it's, it's very interesting, I think, just to follow this and, and, and try to try to clean some lessons from it. Um, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, producers, swine producers and veterinarians kind of deserve a pat on the back. And, and really, it, 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 I think it's served for me anyway, it's highlighted just, you know, how effective we have been. I mean, there's a lot of work to do, but, um, but things mm-hmm. like the swine disease reporting system, like you and, and Giovanni and, and Edison are doing, I think, contribute a significant amount to that that good track record that we have in the swine industry for managing infectious diseases in pigs. So, uh, so uh, kudos to you, and, and and again, I think a pat on the back for all swine veterinarians and, and producers. Yeah, a lot of times people uh, focus on the negative things, right? But it's a it's a good reflection to look back and see how sometimes effective this the. Uh, Population sciences or veterinary medicine, preventive vet medicine has been, right, in terms of yep. characterized disease incidence prevalence in, in farms and make decisions based on that, right? Make decision trees, contingency plans, all based on, on those metrics. You look at the human side, as you said, there are some challenges, but people yep. are pretty much close to the dark, right, as op- uh, regarding uh, disease activity in the, in the population and how, what can you do? Yeah. I think that's accurate reflection. Sometimes we feel like we're in the dark there. So, yeah, I think I think there is certainly a lot of room for improvement there. All right. Well, that's that's what we had for today. Uh, great conversation. Thanks again for joining us, and uh, have a have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. Turn it on soft and low, baby. Let's go.